Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 101. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this on January 4th, 2022, in my bedroom closet in New Orleans. We are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. We believe there's dignity in our national story, along with tragedy, triumph, brilliance, hypocrisy, magnificence, depravity, corruption, venality, inspiration, oppression, genius, defeat, and glory. Happy New Year, everybody. We begin the third year of the History of the Americans podcast with this episode. In the first two years, we pumped out 102 episodes, including the two introductions, so almost one a week. We now have 301 ratings on Apple Podcasts, all but nine of which are five stars. Thank you very much for that, by the way, except for the three one-star people who I choose to think were just being mean. And through yesterday, exceeded 400,000 aggregate downloads and listens, which is pretty good. That's a lot of time you guys spent listening to this podcast, which is very gratifying. We have been iterating our way through the 1620s into the 1640s for some time and will continue to do for at least the next few episodes because a great deal is happening in the lands encompassing today's United States. On a simple level, the significance of the period is measured in the growth of the population of Europeans and descendants of Europeans. In 1620, the aggregate population of such people in today's United States was less than 2,500 people, almost all of whom were in Virginia and the region of the James River, Florida, and New Mexico. There were tiny numbers of Europeans in fishing outposts along the main coast, and at the very end of 1620, the Mayflower landed at Patuxet, which the passengers named New Plymouth, following the precedent of John Smith's map of New England. By 1640, the population of Europeans and their descendants in today's United States had grown more than tenfold to as much as 27,000. The Spanish populations in Florida and New Mexico scarcely grew during this period. The white population of St. Augustine grew from 186, about 1619, to maybe a bit more than 300 in the late 1630s, which makes sense because it was essentially a military garrison with some priests. Nearly as I can tell, there were very few families with children. New Mexico grew a bit more, but barely contributed to that tenfold increase. Virginia grew from perhaps 1,200 ethnic Europeans, mostly English, in 1620, to as many as 8,000 in 1640, contributing a substantial amount to the total growth. But the biggest gains by a long shot were in Massachusetts in the area of Boston, then known as the Massachusetts Bay. From 1628 to 1640, as many as 20,000 English men and women, mostly Puritans, arrived there in what American history is long known as the Great Migration to Massachusetts. Then in 1640, the English essentially stopped coming to New England. For more than 200 years, immigration of English to New England rarely exceeded the death rate. Yet the region's high birth rate Healthy environment and industrious people pushed the population to more than 900,000 descendants of English Puritans by 1790, 
virtually all of whom were fundamentally American and had been for many generations. This uniquely American and yet very homogeneous society, colonial New England was the opposite of a melting pot, more like a distillation pot, would eventually become the beating heart of the American Revolution and have a disproportionate impact on our law and culture. Assuming my muse cooperates, this episode and the next will look at who the Puritans were, the theological and political forces that shaped them, why they suddenly came to Massachusetts in what were then huge numbers, and why just as suddenly they stopped coming. For it was the starting and the stopping of the immigration that would make New England unique. History always begins in the middle of something, and to understand the rise of the Puritans, the best place to start is the Protestant Reformation. Much of this will be familiar to long-standing and attentive listeners and anybody who remembers the Reformation from school, but a refresher can't hurt. Apologies in advance, there's no real body count in this episode, but we'll get back to the rough-and-tumble action stuff when we return to New England. One can detect roots of the Reformation deep in the Middle Ages. But for our purposes, Martin Luther and his famous 99 Theses work just fine. On October 31st, 1517, Luther, a professor of moral theology at the University of Wittenberg, tacked up a list of propositions for debate. As most people who went to a decent Protestant Sunday school know, these 99 theses were fundamentally an attack on the sale of indulgences by the Catholic Church. But Luther wasn't merely charging the church with corruption. He argued that the repentance required for sins to be forgiven was spiritual and individual, rather than ritual sacramental confession. That opened the door to a personal relationship with God, instead of one intermediated by the Catholic Church and its hierarchy. This was very irritating to Pope Leo X, who excommunicated Luther 502 years ago yesterday. That decision might have backfired, but I admit I'm no expert on that question. Luther's ideas spread rapidly because of the new printing presses across Europe, and people were receptive to them for all sorts of reasons, one of which was that the discovery of the new world had opened up mines across the continent. All sorts of things that had not been possible only 25 years before now were. So why not a new relationship with God? Another reason was that it was in the interest of certain national leaders to resist the power of the Catholic Church, which was championed in this world by Spain's Habsburgs, the increasingly dominant power on the continent in no small part, because of the discovery of the New World. England was not one of the places where Luther's ideas spread widely, at least not in those early days. Yes, there were clergy in England who sympathized with Protestantism, but there was no support from the crown. Indeed, in 1521, the great and notorious Tudor King Henry VIII would write a tract defending Catholicism called Assertio Septum Sacramentorum, meaning defense of the seven sacraments. Pope Leo X would award Henry the title Fidei Defensor, meaning defender of the faith. A mere 12 years later, however, in 1533, Henry would ask for an annulment of his marriage to Catherine of Aragon, 
who, unfortunately for Henry, was the youngest child of Ferdinand and Isabella. That made Catherine the sister of Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, possibly the one man in Europe that the Pope dared not defy. There would be no annulment for Henry, at least not from any church that answered to the Pope in Rome. Henry's solution was to take over the Catholic Church in England and confiscate its properties. The King of England would now sit at the top of a Church of England, which would otherwise retain many of its Catholic trappings. England's Protestants might be free of the Pope, but they were not free to worship as they pleased. In England, as everywhere else in Europe, all subjects in the realm were to worship as the monarch worshipped. In 1547, Henry would die, and his son, Edward VI, would become king at the age of nine. Edward's regency was dominated by Protestants, who would tighten the screws on Catholics who dissented from the Church of England. This would provoke periodic Catholic uprisings, including in the West Country. Francis Drake's Protestant father would take his family from Tavistock to Kent to flee just such an uprising— cementing his son's passionate Protestantism and setting up young Francis for his life at sea. We covered Edward VI's short but consequential reign in episode 31, England in the 1500s and the rise of the merchant adventurers, and the Drake family's flight in episode 33, Sir Francis Drake and the rise of English sea power. In 1533, the sickly Edward would die, and his half-sister Mary Tudor would become queen. Mary was decidedly Catholic, would marry Philip II of Spain, and would spend her reign trying to restore the Catholic Church in England. She would fail because Parliament obstructed her, but along the way she would pursue Protestants as heretics, burning as many as 300 at the stake. This would earn her the nickname Bloody Mary. More importantly, it would, in the words of historian John Barry, burn a horror of Catholicism into the psyche of English Protestants. Fortunately for both English Protestantism and the history of the Americans, Mary would also die after a short reign in November 1553. Her brilliant half-sister Elizabeth would become queen and reign for 50 very consequential years. Elizabeth I passed a second act of supremacy, confirming her as supreme governor of the Church of England and requiring everybody to attend the national church. This would infuriate Pope Gregory XIII, who excommunicated Elizabeth and declared that her subjects had no duty to obey her and that killing a heretic such as Elizabeth was not a sin. This had the effect of promoting Catholic plots against Elizabeth, both internally and from abroad. As a result, her national and personal security team were all committed Protestants who cracked down on Catholics, already unpopular in England because of Mary's bloody reign. Catholic nonconformists were known as recusants for having recused themselves from the state church. Their loyalty to England and her queen was deeply suspect, both because resistance to the state religion was unacceptable virtually everywhere, including England, and because Elizabeth's brother-in-law, Philip II, took it upon himself to lead Catholicism's counter-reformation in the secular world. Adherence to Catholicism smacked of support for Spain, England's geopolitical adversary and eventual enemy. 
There were recusants who weren't Catholic during Elizabeth's reign, devoted Protestants who followed the teachings of John Calvin and objected to the traditional Catholic trappings of the Anglican Church. These Protestant recusants were known as early as 1564 by the originally derisive term Puritans. Most Puritans were loyal to the Church of England, but acted to develop their own relationship with God by recusing themselves from certain corrupting church practices that offended their commitment to return to an original and more authentic faith. A few of the Puritans, however, believed that the Church of England was irredeemably corrupt, and they resolved to separate themselves from it. You know all about these separatists. In the first decade of the 1600s, just as the English were looking hard at settling today's New England, many of them went to Leiden in the Netherlands and lived under Dutch religious freedom. Some of them would eventually get on a ship named Mayflower and become the first Puritan settlers in Massachusetts. Elizabeth's church was reasonably tolerant of Puritan recusants. There were practical reasons for this. First, Elizabeth needed all the help she could get in resisting Catholicism, both at home and abroad, and Puritans were valuable allies. Second, the merchant class, the folks with the money in Elizabethan England, were disproportionately Puritan. Puritans believed that evident personal success would reflect God's favor, and therefore the prospect of eternal salvation. So naturally, they worked hard for personal success— Puritanism was the original religious justification for striving and the foundation of the famous Protestant work ethic, a term coined by the German sociologist Max Weber 300 years later. It was also the case that Elizabeth was personally tolerant in a sort of late medieval sense. She was concerned with disloyal acts, not thoughts, and so would pursue Catholic recusants for their acts of dissent and sedition while allowing them their private worship. She would, she said, open no window into men's souls. Her successors would not be so flexible. Elizabeth would die in 1603, and the virgin queen would leave no Tudor heir. The crown would pass to James Stuart of Scotland, who'd already sat on the throne in Edinburgh for 20 years. James had been born to Catholic parents, but had been separated from his parents as a boy and raised as a Protestant. He married a Catholic. Catholicism was creeping back into power in England, and that made many English extremely nervous. Now let's go to John Barry from his book, Roger Williams and the Creation of the American Soul. Quote, Over the next decades, even as the crown and hierarchy edged closer and closer to Catholic form and theology, even as this departure from Calvinist fundamentals created more and angrier dissent, the states, and therefore the churches, tolerance of dissent declined. In the meantime, James viewed and exercised power in ways that not only marginalized those Protestants most devoted to Scripture, but shook English law, threatening even the rights of Englishmen set forth in the Magna Carta. His acts in both religion and politics set off a series of increasingly powerful vibrations that would eventually shatter England. These vibrations would first shake loose from England thousands of Puritans, sending them to America with a purpose and vision that would ultimately inform the temper of the United States. 
back to me. James hoped to establish himself as a great peacemaker and indeed made quick work of settling Elizabeth's long war with Spain, which included ending English support for the Dutch in their rebellion against Spain and staying out of the Thirty Years' War in Europe. None of that reduced religious strife at home, however. In 1605, Catholic terrorists launched the famous gunpowder plot to blow up the House of Lords when James was present. It was foiled. Remember, remember the 5th of November. And its exposure made it impossible to restore the Catholic Church in England for another two centuries. Surviving the Catholic assassination plot, however, did not change James' preference for high church ceremony in the Anglican Church. He continued to appoint bishops who would nudge the Church of England closer to the Roman practice, even while insisting that Catholics take an oath of allegiance and attend Anglican services. At the same time, Puritan resistance was stiffening, and in some cases slid into vandalism of high church images, including stained glass windows, images of saints, and iconic ornaments. James tightened his grip, going so far as to commission a new version of the English Bible that edited out ancient references to kings as tyrants and such. The King James Bible, irritating as it was to Puritans, would go on to become the most popular book ever published in English. It should be. The great Christopher Hitchens, in writing of the Declaration of Independence, said that there is no other example in history apart from the composition of the King James Version of the Bible in which great words and concepts have been fused into poetic prose by the banal processes of a committee. That's quite a compliment from an atheist like Hitchens. In addition to nudging his church toward papist practices and cracking down on Protestant recusants, James provoked domestic animosity by chronically spending more than his income, notwithstanding the end of Elizabeth's wars. That brought him into conflict with Parliament. Parliament controlled the power to tax, and it resisted the request from James to close the budget gap. James blamed the many Puritans in Parliament for denying him the revenues he requested, even though there was plenty of opposition from high church Anglicans who simply objected to profligacy. Unable to raise taxes to the extent that he wanted, James resorted to sketchy revenue raising, including the selling of peerages and commercial monopolies. That challenged the prerogatives and upset the sensibilities of the English elites, including legitimate aristocrats, merchants, who also tended to be Puritan, and lawyers. One of those lawyers was Sir Edward Coke, a name that should be familiar to anybody who made it through the first year of an American law school. Far worse than his fiscal irresponsibility, which admittedly may not seem like a very big deal to 21st century Americans, now enjoying the blessings of fiscal indiscipline, James began to argue that he did not need a parliament to raise taxes. He'd spent enough time consorting with continental monarchs that he became enamored of his status by divine right. In effect, the Scottish James Stuart tried to claim he was an absolute monarch in the fashion of Spanish and French monarchs. That would rock the very foundations of English common law and tradition, of which Sir Edward Coke was the greatest exponent and authority. 
John Barry has a nice summary of the English view of monarchy and the development of the common law, which I think is very useful, notwithstanding its length. So I'm going to read it in full. It's more detailed than is absolutely necessary to understand the forthcoming alienation of the Puritans. But since 49 states adopted the common law of England by one means or another at the time of their admission to the Union, I suspect Barry's summary will be useful in many episodes to come. Quote, James' views on royal authority collided head-on with English history. The concept that the king can do no wrong did exist in English law, derived from Henry de Bracton, the great English scholar of the 1200s, who had concluded that no lord could be sued in his own court. This concept survives today in the doctrine of sovereign immunity. Even Bracton, however, stated explicitly that the king was under the law. In addition, the idea of sovereign immunity did not exist in a vacuum. Several distinct English constitutional traditions limited the power of the king, beginning with the ancient Witnagamut, hope I pronounced that right, a council of wise men. Before the Norman conquest, kings were so far from omnipotent that in one period, 13 of 15 in Northumbria were, had been deposed. After the Norman conquest, William the Conqueror interrupted the Wittengamenut, however you say that, and did bring new laws with him but also continued such institutions as the Hundred Court and the Shire Court, confirmed laws in use, reissued the earlier Code of Canute, which dated from the 11th century, and summoned through all the counties of England the noble, the wise, and the learned in their law. Magna Carta, forced upon King John in 1215, of course, limited the royal power. Yet Magna Carta was largely a summary of previously recognized rights and contained little that was new. For example, it simply copied language from the earlier Charter of Liberties and stating, no free man shall be taken or imprisoned or deceased or outlawed or exiled in any wise destroyed, nor will we go upon him nor send upon him but by the lawful judgment of his peers, or by the law of the land. To none will we sell, to none will we deny or delay, right or justice. Several subsequent versions of Magna Carta were developed, and in 1297, King Edward I finalized it and also, in summoning Parliament, declared, what touches all should be approved of all. And it is also clear that common dangers should be met by measures agreed upon in common. In addition, both before and after Magna Carta, English kings had sworn at their coronation to keep the laws and righteous customs of England. And Parliament had deposed kings, if only rarely. To justify ousting King Edward II in 1399, Parliament first read his coronation oath, then cited 33 separate violations of it and protested that he had claimed that the laws were in his own mouth and breast. Finally, feudalism never fully overcame older English traditions. As a result, Roman law, or civil law, developed under Roman emperors and favoring an absolute monarch, had far less impact on England than on the continent. Instead, custom which included certain rights of such local governments as London, 
as well as statute and, most importantly, common law, all also constrain the monarch. Common law began both to take firm shape and to shape the country in the 1200s, when Henry III sent itinerant justices across the country, making law common and consistent throughout England. Before that, crimes had often been considered a matter between the victim and the perpetrator, where even a murder could be expiated by paying vergild, essentially recompense, to a family. Now crime violated the king's peace, and it was against the nation. Murderers were executed. As common law spread, English lawyers entirely abandoned Roman civil law. While such abstruse concepts as Frankelmoyne, one of the old feudal land tenures, and courts of the forest survived as part of the ancient rights and liberties of English subjects. This made common law more arcane and labyrinthine than civil law, but it's very arcana, along with custom, created a web which restrained power, making England more resistant to absolutism than states on the continent. Lastly, common law was grounded in property rights. For example, transforming land once held only with the approval of a feudal lord into secure ownership. The nation at large came to value both the stability and the protection against arbitrary power which common law provided. All this comprised the English inheritance of rights. All elements of this English inheritance imposed concrete limits on the crown, which inherently contradicted the theory of the divine right of kings. And all this James, like all English monarchs for centuries, had in his coronation oath sworn to confirm and sustain. Thus James brought his new views on royal power and royal prerogative to an England which had come to value the stability of common law and fear the danger of arbitrary power, and to an England already disturbed by high Anglican worship pushing toward Catholicism. He had all the awesome magnificence of the monarch on his side in a time when few thought of questioning a king. He had courtiers and lawyers to second him and justify him. But as he pitted the majesty of the crown against the majesty of the law, he encountered Sir Edward Coke. Back to me. Sir Edward Coke was perhaps the greatest legal scholar in the Anglo-American tradition then or now. Beginning in 1600, Coke published an annual summary of cases and relevant interpretation called Coke's Reports, which both established him as the leading authority on English law and custom and inaugurated a tradition in Anglo-American legal scholarship that survives to the present. 200 years after Coke's confrontation with James I, which we will come to in a moment, Chief Justice of the United States John Marshall would cite Coke in one of the most important cases ever decided by our highest court, Marbury v. Madison, which established the authority of federal courts to decide the legality of laws. Coke had a scribe, a Puritan preacher named Roger Williams. Coke had hired Williams because he had mastered the new skill of shorthand, which greatly increased the productivity of transcription. Williams would go on to become, for my money, the most important American of the first half of the 17th century. But that's a story a few weeks in our future. Sir Edward Coke had been Elizabeth's solicitor general, 
and I continued in that role into James' reign, prosecuting, among others, the conspirators and the gunpowder plot. He became Speaker of the House of Commons. Through his legal acumen, bottomless capacity for hard work, and affinity for what today we would call networking, Koch had become both very wealthy and extremely influential. His rhetorical skills were among the greatest of his era, and he would become the most respected judge in England. His influence was such that even as he opposed James' theory of royal power, James respected him and kept him on his privy council. Until, that is, James couldn't take it anymore and tossed him in the tower. In the struggle between royal authority and liberty, Coke was firmly and always on the side of liberty. One example, Coke helped draft the charter of the Virginia Company in 1606, which included the historically important provision guaranteeing that English subjects in the colony and their descendants shall have and enjoy all liberties, franchises, and immunities as if they'd been abiding and born within this our realm of England. Coke, it should be said, was a high church Anglican, not a Puritan, but he was not unsympathetic to Puritans. He sympathized with their interest in religious liberty, and his sister had married a Puritan, so he had plenty of opportunity, apparently, to get favorable exposure to them at family gatherings. He also knew that the Puritans in Parliament were his allies and his wider struggle to restrain royal power. The second decade of the 1600s was given over to conflict between Parliament and the Puritans on the one hand and James and his Privy Council on the other, defined by an escalating spiral in which confessional conflict and the debate over the scope of royal authority were bound ever more tightly together. Coke sat in the middle of this conflict, in theory, an advisor to the king and in practice, leader of the opposition. John Barry describes Coke's machinations in detail, and his story is a fascinating struggle of intellectual combat between Coke and his supporters in Parliament and the legal and merchant class on the one hand, and James I and the Church of England and their supporters on the other. The outbreak of the religious Thirty Years' War, which James tried mightily to stay out of, escalated the tensions even more. His various attempts to appease Spain— he executed Sir Walter Raleigh, a national hero, because Raleigh had resumed raiding Spanish possessions in the Americas, and he released a hundred Catholic priests from prison, were wildly unpopular. Worse, James pursued the marriage of his son, the future Charles I, to the obviously Catholic Maria Anna, princess of Spain and granddaughter of Philip II, he who had unleashed the Armada, in 1588. Nobody in England had forgotten that, or the horrors of Bloody Mary's reign, or the gunpowder plot, or the pursuit of the Leiden separatists by Church of England heretic hunters, which catalyzed their perilous voyage to the New World. The Puritans were becoming afraid for their own safety in their own country. In January 1621, just as the Mayflower pilgrims were settling in at Patuxet and still weeks before Samoset would wander out of the forest to welcome them. Financial stress drove James to call Parliament into session. Parliament authorized funds for James, but far below the amount he had requested and attached conditions, 
which enraged James. But that was not all. There was an ancient tradition of freedom of speech within Parliament, and the Commons took full advantage of it. They formed a Committee on Grievances, and Coke sat at its chair, in Barry's words, an odd position for a privy councillor. From that perch, Coke interpreted ancient English law to permit Parliament to serve as a court of record, able to fine, imprison, and impeach, the resuscitation of a power that Parliament had not deployed in more than 200 years. The Committee on Grievances went after the most deplorable of James' supporters in the government and the courts and brought down several of his most important allies on charges of corruption. James, enraged and embarrassed, suspended Parliament and tossed several of his most vocal opponents, although not yet Coke, in the tower to straighten them out. In November 1621, roughly at the moment of the first Thanksgiving at Plymouth, James ended Parliament's recess but forbade it from, quote, licentious talking in matters of state, an affront to the right of free speech long permitted to members. All right, here's an aside. That ancient parliamentary right echoes in the United States Constitution, which reads, quote, the senators and representatives shall in all cases except treason, felony, and breach of the peace, be privileged from arrest during their attendance at the session of their respective houses and in going to and returning from the same. And for any speech or debate in either house, they shall not be questioned in any other place. Anyway, Parliament would have none of it. On December 1st, the Commons sent the king a petition citing 14 grievances, all concerning Catholics. It demanded the enforcement of the laws of conformity against Catholics, and further, that Prince Charles, the king's son, be happily married to one of our own religion. A slap at James' flirtations with Spain. Spain's ambassador, the Count of Gondomer, who had bizarrely become one of James' confidants, got his hands on the petition even before the king. He forwarded it along with a note that said that if James did not, quote, punish the insolence of this commons, he would have ceased to be a king here. Ouch. Gondomer's trolling worked. Now let's go to Barry's account for the big moment. Quote, James needed no prodding from Spain to define his kingly powers. He chose now to enter the area not of policy but of constitutional law. He informed Commons he would not deign to read its petition, hear it, or answer it. He then commanded the Speaker of the House to make known in our name unto the House that none therein shall meddle henceforth with anything concerning our government or deep matters of state, and namely, not to deal with our dearest son's match with the daughter of Spain, nor to touch the honor of that king or any other of our friends and confederates. Such issues were far above your reach and capacity, and discussions of them breach royal prerogative. He warned, we think ourselves very free and able to punish any man's misadventures in our parliament, which we mean not to spare hereafter, any man's insolent behavior there. The king had entered the area of constitutional law. It was Coke's area. 
Here at Coke, at 69 years old, a virtual living monument, led with a Puritan strong beside him. Together they were potent indeed. The speaker read the king's rebuke in all solemnity to the commons. He read it a second time. He read it a third time. On each word in each reading, he placed full dignity. Each word fell like a lash. The members listened in unhappy and restless silence. After the third reading, they adjourned for the day. Members milled about discussing what to do next and met privately that night. Few were cowed. When Commons reconvened, Coke informed his colleagues there was no precedent for the king's message. Commons defiantly passed a second, almost identical petition, again asking the king to act on our former petition concerning religion, occasioned by the danger of these times. Regarding the threat to punish insolent behavior, Commons adopted Coke's language, reminding James of the ancient liberty of Parliament for freedom of speech, a liberty which we assure ourselves so wise and just a king will not infringe, the same being our ancient and undoubted rights and an inheritance from our ancestors, without which we cannot freely debate nor clearly discern of things in question before us. Back to me. James did not take this well. He dissolved Parliament and declared he would not call another in his lifetime. Gondomar, the Spanish ambassador who was so close to James, reported to Madrid that the dissolution of Parliament was, quote, the best thing that had happened in the interests of Spain and the Catholic religion since Luther began to preach heresy a hundred years ago. Even to Spain, then, the interests of Parliament and the Puritans, while not the same thing at all, were perceived as the same. But dissolved or not, Parliament would not just go away. The Commons worked deep into the night, writing a formal declaration of its and the nation's rights. Per Barry, the protestation read, in pertinent part, quote, that the liberties, franchises, privileges, and jurisdictions of Parliament are the ancient and undoubted birthright and inheritance of the subjects of England, and that the arduous and urgent affairs concerning the king, state and defense of the realm and of the Church of England, and the maintenance and making of laws and redress of mischiefs and grievances, which daily happen within this realm, are proper subjects and matters of counsel and debate in Parliament, and that in the handling and proceeding of those businesses, every member of the House of Parliament hath and of right ought to have freedom of speech. Back to me. James summoned Coke for an audience and after lacerating him in front of the rest of the Privy Council, dispatched him to the tower where he would remain through the cold winter. An investigation designed to get the goods on Coke would fail. There were no goods to get. And within six months, he was released. He would rise in defense of English liberty one more time during a crisis later in the decade during which James' son and heir, Charles I, would finally provoke tens of thousands of Puritans into leaving England behind. That story will be for the next time. This episode may have seemed a bit abstract. My hope is that it neatly gathers up several big themes that are important to the history of the Americans— 
including the influence of the incomplete, top-down version of the Reformation in England, the escalating and related struggle for authority between Parliament and Crown, and the new articulation of the ancient rights of the English in the course of that struggle. These would lead to the flight of the Puritans after 1628 and eventually the English Civil War, which would end Puritan immigration and have its own profound influence on the history of the Americans. Thank you again for listening. We hope you enjoy listening to the History of the Americans podcast as much as we enjoy making it, and that you will tell all your friends, spread the word on your social propaganda website of choice, write us a nice review on Apple, and subscribe in your favorite podcast app. And, of course, you can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. Until next time.